Hello, this is Pastor Ryan Brown of the Pastoria Baptist Church, and you are listening to Aroma of Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Pastoria Baptist Church. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 89. And this psalm is written by Ethan the Ezraite, and he is really recording and thinking about his emotions at the time of the exile. He has hope that God is faithful to his promises and knows that there is a son of David that will reign forever, but he looks around and it's not clear what God is doing or how it will be done. And so near the end of the psalm, he holds on to a glimmer of hope in the midst of the hopeless circumstances. And the scripture reads in Psalm 89, starting in verse 33. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, that is David, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. Selah. But thou hast cut off and abhorred. Thou hast been wroth with thine anointed. Thou hast made void the covenant of thy servant. Thou hast profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. Thou hast broken down all his hedges. Thou hast brought his strongholds to ruin. All that pass by the way spoil him. He is a reproach to his neighbors. Thou hast set up the right hand of his adversaries. Thou hast made all his enemies to rejoice. Thou hast also turned the edge of his sword, and hast not made him to stand in the battle. Thou hast made his glory to cease, and cast his throne down to the ground. The days of his youth hast thou shortened, thou hast covered him with shame. Selah. How long, Lord, wilt thou hide thyself forever? Shall thy wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. Wherefore hast thou made all men in vain? What man is he that liveth and shall not see death? Shall he deliver his soul from the hand of the grave? Selah. Lord, where are thy former loving kindnesses which thou swearest unto David in thy truth? Remember, Lord, the reproach of thy servants, how I do bear in my bosom the reproach of all the mighty people. Wherewith thine enemies have reproached, O Lord, wherewith they have reproached the footsteps of thine anointed. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. Well, good morning. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We will be beginning to look through the book of Matthew starting this week. 
And no, I don't know how far into 2023 this is going to take me. But we are going to get started with verses 1 through 17. Since Matthew is a big book, it's helpful to know a bit of where we're going. Naturally, it's a biography of Jesus and his life and his death. And Matthew structures it around discourses that Jesus gave. So that we have narrative followed by discourse and narrative discourse. Jesus' speeches pave some dividing lines between different content. But it begins then by showing how his ministry begins by showing how his life begins. And so our passage begins in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time we have to look at your word to be able to understand more about the coming of Christ, how Jesus was born, how he lived, and how he died. Help us through all of the study of Matthew to just be able to rejoice again and again and again about how wonderful your salvation is. Allow today to really help us to begin that journey well, to see how Matthew begins to tell us about Jesus and the beginnings of his ministry. I thank you, Lord, and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think many of us find that we love this time of year. Christmas, perhaps even Advent, that fancy word for coming, that has come to know and to be understood as an anticipation of a coming. Whereas we sit here anticipating Christ's second coming, we remember how Old Testament believers anticipated his first coming how they were joyful about him coming and being born. We love singing the songs about how wonderful it is that he was the Lord at the birth, his birth. Or as one song declares, O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem, O come and behold him born the king of angels. O come, let us adore him. And the fact that he is born the king of the Jews, and not just the king of the Jews, but also the king of humanity, and not just the king of humanity, but the king of angels, such that we can worship him and adore him at his birth, is good reason to be joyful, faithful, and triumphant. But what if we don't feel faithful, joyful, or triumphant? What if the circumstances of our life, the way we're living, or actually the circumstances in which we live, are dark, seem hopeless? It is within a hopeless milieu that Matthew begins his gospel. 
He intentionally shows continuity and a sequel to the Old Testament narrative. But the Old Testament narrative ends in exile. Where Ethan the Ezraite in our psalm is questioning how God can be faithful to the promise that a Davidic son will reign forever. When because of Israel's dark living, they have the dark time of having no Davidic throne, no Davidic king. For remembering the anticipation of the first coming, it's remembering a time of hoping against hope. Of having faithfulness when it's difficult and hard. But Matthew begins by saying we do have reason for hope. Because the long-anticipated son is Jesus. We're going to look at Matthew 1, 1 through 17 in three parts. The first is a header. It's verse 1 alone. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The book of the generation the book of the Genesis, the origin, the beginning of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Seems likely this is not just the header for our passage, but also giving the title for chapters 1 through 4. Everything leading up to the first discourse of the Sermon on the Mount. The book, the record of the Genesis of Jesus. But before jumping to his Genesis, Matthew wants us to know three things about Jesus. That he is the Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. And we could spend a whole sermon probably on each one of those points. So today we will be a bit briefer. Jesus is the Christ. Hebrew word Messiah, we would say anointed one. The one anointed by God to deliver his people. Anointed with oil is a lot of way we see this in the Old Testament, but we also have evidence that it's not just with oil, but with the Holy Spirit, with God himself. And it really becomes a catch-all term for a snake crusher, the son of a woman the woman, Eve, who will crush the head of the snake, destroy that evil, and bring to life God's righteous reign. But we learn that this Christ is ultimately the son of David. Ethan the Ezraite is reflecting on God's promise in Psalm 89. That he swore by his holiness to David that his offspring would not be cut off forever, that someone would reign. And here we have a son of David. Though the Greek doesn't require it, it does seem like it's appropriate to have the translation the son of David, not a son of David. It's not just another son, it is the son that was long anticipated and promised. And in light of that, it is not just a son of Abraham. 
David was a son of Abraham. Any son of David is going to be a son of Abraham. But it is the son of Abraham in which all the promises to Abraham come to pass. Now, within Genesis, there is some ambiguity, whether you're talking entirely about the individual or the nation as the seed of Abraham. But as it keeps going throughout Genesis, it does get pushed to not just be about a nation, but to be about an individual in whom all families of the world would be blessed. And that individual, Matthew here says, is Jesus. It's then fitting that we begin this understanding of the beginnings of Jesus with a genealogy that vindicates he is a son of David and a son of Abraham, so that he can be known as the son of David and the son of Abraham. And so our next point that Matthew brings out is this three-part genealogy in verses 2 through 16. It's carefully constructed, follows the line of royal succession of David, and there's a pretty clear pattern. A begat B, B begat C, and C begat D. One person fathered another person, and that other person fathered another person. We're going to read all of this, but we're only going to pause when Matthew breaks from that pattern. As the breaks from that pattern, those deviations are likely the way in which he's telling us his main points. And so beginning in verse 2, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. At this point, we probably see Matthew highlighting a bit of the nation. It is the twelve sons of Jacob that become the twelve tribes of Israel. The corporate dimensions of the Abrahamic covenant came in the twelve sons. He did make of him a great nation. It's also possible that we are supposed to see Judah being particularly highlighted, because the next deviation is in the next line in verse 3. And Judas begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar. We don't necessarily know this narrative as much as the other narratives referenced within the genealogy. So we're going to go ahead and turn to Genesis 38. In Genesis 38, Judah has three sons. Tamar marries one of these sons, but the Lord puts him to death, so she marries another of the sons, as was the custom in that day. He also is put to death, and Judah decides that Tamar is a bad omen, and he's not going to give his third son to her. He tells her to go, be a widow, mourn, and then I will give you my last son. Tamar eventually finds out that's not 
going to happen. And being apprised of that, she takes matters into her own hands. And then we can read in Genesis 38, starting in verse 13. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to share his sheep. And she put her widow's garments off from her, and covered her with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnath. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, up, and she was not given unto him to wife. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be a harlot, because she had covered her face. And he turned unto her by the way, and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What wilt thou give me, that thou mayest come in unto me? And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge, till thou send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Thy signet, and thy bracelets, and thy staff that is in thine hand. And he gave it her, and came in unto her, and she conceived by him. The result of this conception is the two twins mentioned in verses 29 through 30 of Perez and Zerah, mentioned also in Matthew 1. And so we have this woman, daughter-in-law of Judah, mentioned in the genealogy of Matthew, of genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, because she befriended to be a prostitute. Because she did this disgusting deed. Slept with her father-in-law. Quite significant sexual immorality. And Judah is most definitely not excused from this either. He went to sleep with a prostitute. He didn't fulfill his duty to give Shrila to Tamar. He lied about intending to do so in the first place. He is right to say in verse 26, She hath been more righteous than I. But they are in Matthew, Matthew 1, in this genealogy. We turn back to Matthew 1. We'll reread verse 3. And Judas begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar. And Perez begat Ezram, and Ezram begat Aram, and Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nashon, and Nashon begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rehoboth. Here is a story we're more familiar with. This is part of the narrative we understand. Rahav, Rahab, is there. So we go from this Tamar, that's a Gentile woman pretending to be a prostitute, to Rahab, who just is a Gentile prostitute. That's what she was. But she heard of God's mighty deeds to protect his people Israel, 
to bring them out of Egypt, and her fear of Yahweh turns into faith in Yahweh. She changes allegiances, changes sides to be an Israelite, to join them, to protect the spies and receive covenant loyalty from Israel and Israel's God. And it doesn't take long for there to be another deviation in the pattern. In verse 5, And Solomon begat Boaz of Rahav, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. Now we go from the Gentile prostitute to the Gentile prostitute's Gentile daughter-in-law, who also came to be an Israelite, my people, your people will be my people, your God will be my God, came to serve the one true God, married Boaz, and ultimately came to be a Gentile proselyte. Continuing on, Obad begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David, the king. The reminder that David is the king begins the line of royal succession from David, tracing down who is the king who will come from David's line. And so then Matthew begins the second part of his genealogy with David. And David, the king, begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. It's not just A begat B. It's David fathered Solomon of the wife of Uriah. Unlike the other women who have been mentioned in this genealogy, Bathsheba is not mentioned by name. She is mentioned as the ex-wife of Uriah. And based off of what we've already seen, there does seem to be two reasons for it. One is that we don't know the ethnicity of Bathsheba. But 2 Samuel 11.3 tells us that Uriah is a Hittite. He is a Canaanite. He's a Gentile. But the other reason seems to be that it highlights David's adultery and murder. Because at the time of the birth of Solomon, David and Bathsheba are married. But the first time that David and Bathsheba have a child together, Bathsheba is married to Uriah. Not only so, David had Uriah murdered to cover it up. This great man in whom is at this genealogy and almost at the center of this genealogy has such a stain of adultery and murder. Verse 7. And Solomon begat Reboam, and Reboam begat Abiah, and Abiah begat Asa, and Asa begat Josaphat, 
And Josephat begat Joram, and Joram begat Ozias. And Ozias begat Jotham, and Jotham begat Achaz, and Achaz begat Hezekiah, and Hezekiah begat Manassas, and Manassas begat Amon, and Amon begat Josias. And Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. If at the end of the first part we had the high expectations of David the king, here at the end of the second part we have the hopelessness of exile. So we keep reading through the last part, even the most biblically astute scholar isn't going to recognize a name after Zerubbabel. They aren't kings, even if they are in the royal line of succession. They don't sit on a Davidic throne, for there is no Davidic throne for them to sit on. How can God make of these people any sort of Davidic king to reign forever? Verse 12. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begat Abiad, and Abiad begat Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Azor, and Azor begat Zadok, and Zadok begat Achim, and Achim begat Eliad, and Eliad begat Eleazar, and Eleazar begat Mothan, and Mothan begat Jacob. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And here at this point, there is a clear deviation. Indeed, if we've been expecting A fathered B, we don't have that at all here. Jacob begat Joseph, and Joseph is the husband of Mary. Can't say Joseph fathered Jesus, but we can say that he, Jesus was born of Mary. That he she is his mother. It hints at what verses 18 through 25 show us to be true. What Mike has read this morning from Isaiah 7:14, "A virgin shall conceive." This is a different type of conception and a different type of birth. And Jesus is called Christ. He is called the Anointed One, the Messiah, the One which is hoped for. And Matthew pulls this part of his introduction to a conclusion in verse 17. It's a summary statement. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. 
and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ, our 14 generations. He has three parts. Each of those three parts he's constructed to have 14 generations. He's taking great pains for that to be the case. And it leads to the question, why? Why is Matthew wanting 14 generations and to call to our mind that there is this symmetry? And I think it has a lot to do with Hebrew. The language of Hebrew and some Hebrew idiom. Now, being born in America, we don't have the luxury of being bilingual. We don't have that great privilege and blessing. So we don't necessarily think about how weird. We think it would be weird that Matthew, writing in Greek, would be thinking about Hebrew wordplays. But unlike us, Matthew would have known and thought in multiple languages. Most likely Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. He also likely studied the Bible in all three of those languages. But at any rate, 14 is a numeric value for the name of David. Within Hebrew, each letter can stand for a number, and David would be 4 plus 6 plus 4, 14. Putting David as the real center of this whole genealogy and announcing that the Davidic hope is here, regardless of a lack of a Davidic throne, it will come. This is the son of David. But that still leaves a question. What is gained by the deviations from the pattern? Some of them we can see Judas and his brethren in regards to the nation, the birth of Jesus being clear that it's not Joseph as his father. But what about the others? Why are we hearing about a Gentile woman pretending to be a prostitute or a Gentile prostitute turning into a believer or the Gentile prostitute's Gentile daughter-in-law? Well, do already then see one reason. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, the son of David, the long-anticipated son, but he is the Jewish Messiah for all nations. In thy seed shall all families of the earth be blessed. The genealogy confirms the benefit to Gentiles coming, the ultimate inclusion of Gentiles within the church. And I think it also helps us to see that not only does Jesus provide hope to Jews and Gentiles, he provides hope to all types of sinners, all types of particularly sexually immoral people. Genesis 38 is one of the darkest places in Scripture. Judah is lying. 
sleeping around with a prostitute. Tamar is willfully sleeping with her father-in-law in order to have a seed continued. 2 Samuel 11 to 12 is also a pretty dark time when David, the king of Israel, sees someone he likes, doesn't care that it's a wife of one of his servants, sleeps with her, and does all that he can to let it not be known to anyone else to the point of killing Uriah. And not only then is David in the genealogy, he's at the center of it. It's about how Jesus is fulfilling promises to him and hope that he began to make sense of. If you're here, you don't have that hope this Christmas season of Jesus saving you, know that it can happen. There is nothing that you could have done to prevent the blood of Christ being able to wash your sin away. If it's good enough for Judah and Tamar, for Rahab, for David, if it's good enough for me and for other people sitting in this room, it's good enough for you. It's all you'll ever need. Turn from your sin. Turn to Christ. Believe in him. And have salvation. And if you have done that, and you're in despair as how you can still have hope, not just because circumstances are dark, but because your own living seems to be dark, Know that Christ died for you, too. He came for you in your darkest moments, not just your brightest. Last year, a new Christmas song was put out by Sovereign Grace. And it actually plays on the song we began with of O Come All You Faithful, but takes it in a different direction. O come, all you unfaithful. Come, weak and unstable. Come, know you are not alone. O come, barren and waiting ones. Weary of praying, come. See what your God has done. Christ is born, Christ is born, Christ is born for you. O come, bitter and broken, with fears unspoken, come taste of his perfect love. O come, guilty and hiding ones, there is no need to run. See what your God has done. Christ is born. Christ is born. Christ is born for you. Father, we do thank you that 
regardless of how hopeless the exile seemed, you brought the Davidic hope. Jesus came, born within the line of royal succession, to be not just another son of David, but the son of David. Not just another son of Abraham, but the son of Abraham, the Messiah, snake crusher. And we thank you for the reminder in this genealogy that that's not just good news for the Jewish people, and it's not just good news for the righteous. It is good news for those of us who struggle to be faithful, joyful, and triumphant. We still have reason to come, to speak, and to rejoice in you adoring Christ the Lord at his birth. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? <laughs>